Amen. Amen. Uh, good to see so many of you here this morning, especially when like half of our congregation is traveling or um, stuck in an airport somewhere or somewhere much colder than here, which is kind of hard to imagine for most of you Floridians. Um, but I am glad you're here. But I have a question for you. Uh, why are you here? Because shouldn't you be home in your uh, Santa Claus PJs, you know, uh, making it rain with, with, with the wrapping paper? Isn't that what we're supposed to do this morning? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's interesting how many conversations I've had with pastors really starting about Thanksgiving, about are you guys meeting on Christmas and how are you viewing this? And you can really tell a lot about someone's ministry by how they, they, they talk about Christmas. Um, and this debate comes up anytime we challenge the sacred calves of our day, right? Well, you can touch anything, but not that. You know, uh, we, we, we treat Sunday as if it's a burden that we place on people. Not, not we, but I've heard churches use this language. Well, we want to give our volunteers a break. We want to give people family time. Well, they have family traditions, and we don't want to impose on that. What does that say about us? That the worship of God is imposing upon people's family traditions. Or that we want to save our volunteers from the burden of uh, having to actually serve one another. Um, it's interesting to me that among Christians, even, that a day that is supposed to be celebrating the birth of our Savior, you avoid fellowship with other Christians so that you can huddle around your stuff. Uh, it's interesting that the New York Times, of all places, has this article, uh, has this headline, O come all ye faithful, except when Christmas falls on a Sunday. That's from the New York Times. Profiling a church, this is just to save the, uh, save the uh, guilty party here. I just want to show you what, what they do in the month of December, except meeting on Christmas. Uh, so they, they call December their uh, Super Bowl month. It's some, some mega church. They have, uh, they have four jingle jam parties. Uh, they have nine services on Christmas Eve. They have Christmas-themed coffee, drinks, festive photo booths. Um, they have breakfasts all around the community on Sunday morning, but no service. Come all ye faithful, except when Christian Christmas falls on Sunday. Uh, I think that is about appropriate. But it's interesting how many pastors are having this conversation and how many pastors are wrestling with this or getting asked this. And some of you have asked me, are we, you know, are we going to meet on Christmas? Come on. Um, but the real question is, what do we do when the cultural pressures push in? What do we do when the world around us and the things that the culture celebrates, or cultural celebrations, push back against our biblical observations? So will we observe what the Bible tells us to observe? Will we lean into what God has ordained? Or will we exalt what man has created? And to be honest, I mean, we can celebrate the birth of Christ, but it's a man-created holiday. And so Sunday, for us, Sunday worship is not an obligation that, or, um, that, that we're letting people out of, but it is a privilege that we are letting people into. And so hopefully, as you see from today's message, uh, today above all days is absolutely a day to gather and worship our Savior and King. And as we said this morning in prayer, there is no place I would rather be. 
Uh, and so some of you were also surprised that I would take a step out of 1 Timothy. And so, yes, we're in Isaiah 9 today. So just so you know, like Isaiah 9 is a, is, is a bucket list, or Isaiah is a bucket list book. And so if you're here long enough, we will get through Isaiah at, at some point. I, I love Isaiah because it's the gospel in the Old Testament. And um, in Isaiah, we get the complete person and work of Christ. And we're going to look at a lot of those aspects this morning. And it is a book of good news when uh, Israel has nothing but bad. Their character is bad. Their morality is bad. Their, their king is bad. There is no peace. They're about to get invaded. And they deserve it. But Israel, the appropriate prophet, his name means Yahweh has brought salvation. Yahweh has given salvation to his people. So the book is filled with hope and promise, which is sprinkled among heavy condemnation and judgment against wicked Judah, wicked Israel, and the nations. The prophet of Isaiah is, is quoted more than any other Old Testament book in the New Testament. There are hundreds, literally hundreds of messianic prophecies and illusions in the text. And we're just going to look at a few and really focus on the, the personifications. Where do we see God personified, God as person among his people? And so this prophet, like the others, he speaks of some near events that, that have implication for Israel, but also a lot of far eschatological or end times, last things events. And so he's going to look at present judgment uh, against future promise, but ultimately looking at deliverance in the last times. And so Isaiah has much to offer us, many similarities. Isaiah was written in a time when there was a, a large apostasy. Many of the people who would have associated themselves with the people of God and the things of God uh, are, are no longer faithful. There is a small faithful remnant. And the people are looking forward to salvation, to restoration to the multitude. Uh, and so there is much for us. And Israel's problem, as I stated before, they were not good. Their kingdom was not good. Their king Ahaz was certainly not good. And the state of their nation was not good. So they needed some good news. And so uh, if you will open up to Isaiah, and we will be uh, strictly in Isaiah, except for one or two gospel references today. So Isaiah chapter 9, I may begin in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her, for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. We praise you for your grand plan of redemption. The covenant from ages past, perfect agreement and perfect accomplishment from our Father to the Son through the Spirit, that a lost and wayward people would be drawn to you, that you would be glorified through the saving of sinners, that you would be magnified through the incarnation of a Savior that Emmanuel would be exalted first on a cross and then to the throne of glory. May he be exalted this morning. May he be lifted up on high above all else. May he be the name on our lips. May he be the affection in our hearts. May we walk away from here encouraged as citizens of his kingdom. And if anyone here does not know him. May they repent and believe. May they fall down on their face and ask for forgiveness because they will either reign with him or they will be his footstool. We praise you that you would call us out of darkness into your marvelous light. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so to understand our text, you have to understand the context. Uh, go to Isaiah chapter 1. I want to kind of tell you what the situation is, what's going on in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, you don't have to go much further than verse 2. Here's kind of the, the, the problem, uh, what needs to be resolved in the entire book. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up as one walks down the aisle. But they have rebelled against me. What a great picture of humanity. <laughs> and then here's the bad news, right along with the good news, moving on to verse 27 in the same chapter. Here's kind of a uh, summary of Isaiah's message. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed." Here's what Isaiah is facing the people with. There is life in justice and righteousness in the Lord, and there is death for those who rebel against him. And Isaiah is a book of judgment, diverted, deserted lands, and slavery ensuing. But there are glimmers of hope, like if we jump ahead to chapter 6. If you're familiar with chapter 6, this is Isaiah's great calling as he sees a vision of the throne room of the Lord. And he falls on his knees in worship and he hears the words, holy, holy, holy. And, and he hears the call to go out to the people and he says, here I am, send me. And there is a blindness and a darkness that will come over the people. But at the very end, there is a remnant and who will do it? The, the last line of chapter six. The holy seed is its stump. This, 
this tree, this, this promise of what will grow into salvation is a holy seed planted by God. It is the very root and, and trunk of this tree. There is another promise in the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 14. We sang this earlier. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We sang that song, Emmanuel, God with us. This is what Israel needs because they have left the Lord. He has not left them. But because they, they turn, he gives them over and he hardens hearts. And they need God with them and none of their kings can measure up. And so, before we get into chapter 9, the context of chapter 8 is helpful. The end of chapter 8, verses 11 through 22, just so you know, uh, there's a lot of these, all these references are at the bottom in their full context uh, of your notes. We won't get into all of them during the sermon. But what's going on at the end of chapter 8 is don't trust in the nations, don't trust, uh, don't worry about what they, they worry about, don't follow after them, trust in the Lord. And then a couple familiar verses, verse 13 of chapter 8, but the Lord of hosts him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and rock of stumbling on both houses of Israel. Remember I said we're going to look at the personifications in Israel. Both Paul and Peter pick up on this language. That Jesus Christ is the stone, the, 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 the rock that, will, that they will stumble over. But this is clearly the Lord of hosts. He is the only one you should fear. He is the only one you should trust. And he, who you should trust, will be your rock of stumbling. Verse 15, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And those who fall, those who are ensnared, those who stumble over it, they are in darkness. They can't see. That's why they stumble over this rock. And here's where chapter 8 ends. And they will look to the earth, but behold... Distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they shall be thrust into thick darkness. Here's where we find ourselves. Chapter 9. The end of chapter 8, there is darkness in the land. The people can't see. The very cornerstone that is to be the, the, the rock of their salvation, they trip over. They make him an offense to them. And this dark physical state that they're in, Assyria is about to invade. Their country has lost all of its prosperity and, and, and all of its luster. But the spiritual darkness is even greater. Here's where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 9. But. All good news in the scriptures begins with but. Because when it comes to us, it's always bad news. But God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he, he has made glorious the way by the sea. So we have to understand what's going on here historically and geographically. So Zebulun and, and Naphtali, they were, uh, it's, it's the region that is west-northwest of Galilee. This is the uh, trade route. This is where any of the conquerors who are going to come in and take Jerusalem, they must get through there first. Now, in the former times, they're the ones who refused to destroy all the Canaanites. If you read through Judges, the very beginning of Judges, they, they refused to destroy the Canaanites. Who are the Canaanites? 
They were the unholy Gentiles who did not worship the Lord. And so what happened? They have more Gentile influence than any other area. They did not follow the Lord and obey the Lord as they should in former times. And they were the, the first ones to be conquered and thrown out of their, their land. That was in former time. But in latter time, Matthew chapter 4, these two areas are mentioned. This will be up in the screen. You can turn there if you'd like. Notice what marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Where does he begin? The least faithful of the, the areas where they had inhabited land, Jesus begins. Now when he had heard that John, this is uh, Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 12. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah must be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. They were so influenced because they had not put the Canaanites to death. They were called Galilee of the Gentiles. It was a highway for the nations that went to Jerusalem. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and a shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the context of the coming of the Savior. These very lands, he proclaims, repent and believe, this, this kingdom gospel message. And this trade route for the Gentiles becomes a gospel highway. And this is where Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, this is where he begins. So this is the historical, geographical, and eschatological backdrop of the prophetic hymn we're now going to look at. So, verse 2. These people who walked in darkness, they have seen a great light. You know what's interesting about when prophets speak? They speak in the future, but this translation is correct. It's a, it's a perfect tense. They speak in the future, but they see it as if it's already accomplished. Because to the prophets, it is. They see the work of God as being complete already. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This is conversion language. The darkness of being blind. The light of sight. And the light shines brightest in the darkness. The darkness of their physical situation, but even the darker state of their hearts. When the gospel goes out, when Jesus Christ begins his ministry in Galilee, the light of the world that John talked to us about. The light of the world has come into the world. And he who shines on, he shines his light on, they will live and they will see. It is a great light. It's not just a little light. It's not just a, lim a glimmer. It is a great light. When we read light in the scriptures, it is illumination. It is instruction. It is freedom but it is most importantly salvation. This is salvation language to dead people. God's answer in their darkness, in their unfaithfulness, is his mercy and his faithfulness, the light in which he was sent. And so now here are the benefits of the light coming. So you, you, you've got the theological situation in, in verse two, 
But here's what's going on practically and spiritually in verse three and four. Notice who gets the credit here, you. Isaiah is directing this to the Lord. We're the problem, but you are the solution. You are the good news. Again, this is past tense for future fulfillment because if the Lord says it, if the Lord shows it to his prophets, it will happen. It will come into being. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. He increased their number and he increased their joy, resulting in rejoice before you. So let's spend a moment there. Because God's design for his people and and people's problem before God is being in his presence. This is why they need Emmanuel. Let's, Let's look at this for just a moment. God's design is for proximity with his people, for dwelling. In creation, it was patterned that God should walk with his people in the cool of the day. In the fall, that dwelling was lost. In the wilderness, it was gained again in the tabernacle. In the temple, it was solidified, having a a, a localized place of worship. And in the exile, it was lost again because they could no longer go to the temple. Here is where Israel and Judah are about to find themselves in the next couple hundred years. It was manifested in the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. The greatest joy that any people anywhere can have is to be before the presence of God and not cover their eyes like the six-winged seraph that we sang about earlier. This dwelling, this presence of God that was manifested in the incarnation was offered in the crucifixion, was vindicated in the resurrection, and is possessed in conversion. This is the great light. What you, the Lord, have done, what greater joy could he increase than the same God who dwelt among us, the same God who offered himself on the cross, the same God who was vindicated at the resurrection would find his home in his people and that we would possess it in conversion. That is reason for rejoicing. That is reason for joy. And so then he gives two metaphors here, two physical metaphors with with, uh, spiritual symbolism. And they rejoice with you before as, with the joy and harvest, and as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Let's look at these two. Harvest. What What is harvest? It's a celebration of supply. God bringing in food for the people. And so every year they would celebrate harvest. But what does harvest signify spiritually? Mass conversion. The turning of the lost, the darkness being shown on with the light of the gospel and people's eyes being opened. They are rejoicing as in this great harvest that comes in. Second thing, spoil. What are spoils? They are riches gained from victory. Spoils. Every time Israel defeated a nation, they are to be reminded that you are not only to just defeat them, but you are to humiliate them. Take everything that is as of value, the, righteous, the riches of the wicked are stored up for the righteous. This spoil, this is the riches that are taken in victory. And when your king takes victory over his enemies, you now share in the spoils of war. You are now given an inheritance. This is, this is mass conversion of the nations. This is mass inheritance from the victory of your king. 
That is certainly reason for rejoicing. And what brings about that rejoicing? Next verse. For or because the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. As on the day of Midian. Because you, Lord, you have delivered from your your people. What does this language signify? These are all spiritual versions of slavery. These are all slavery terms. Let's look at each one of these quickly. The yoke. What was the yoke? It was something that you would wrap around your, your shoulder. It's, it, is a, it is a burden that's dragged behind you because you carry either two by two or one by one this, this, this weight around your shoulder. That was the yoke. The, it's a collar to pull a great weight. The burden is the weight that is attached to the collar. The staff is the authority to subjugate. And so your oppressors put a yoke on your shoulder, they put a burden on you, and their their staff is beating your back. And then there is a rod, which is just cruelty, to inflict pain and correction. He increases joy by removing his people from slavery, not just by removing, but breaking all of the bonds destroying all of the physical and spiritual subjugation that his people will soon be in. And he continues. What else has he done? He removes spiritual slavery, but then he defeats the enemy as well. Verse five, four. Also, where's the rejoicing coming from? No more slavery, no more war. Verse five, verse five, for every boot of the, ter- of, the, of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is continued reason for rejoicing. No more enemy, no more war, no more death, no more destruction, no more oppression. He breaks all the bonds of slavery and he destroys, burns all the tools of war. This is how great this conquering king is. That's why when we sing all of these theologically rich, rich Christmas hymns, we should consider these words. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Verse 3, joyful. Verse 5, triumphant. We are to be people who are joyful and triumphant. Martin Luther, when preaching on a a Christmas morn one year, said, looking at a text like Isaiah 9 should not just cause you to believe because it's true, but it should cause you to trust in faith. Because any, it's not just a matter of rejoicing, because any child on any Christmas morning can rejoice that they got a present, but how long does that last? But if you trust in faith, if you rejoice in your heart, not just because of the idea of a gift, but what has been given on your behalf and your salvation is accomplished from all of sin and all of death, your Savior, what he's done on your behalf, that is reason for rejoicing. And so where does this come from? Where's the promised light come from? Where's the deliverance from slavery come from? Where's the defeat of the enemy come from? Verse 6, 4, There is a logical progression here. The darkness to light. 
You've increased our joy. You've removed our burden. You've destroyed our enemy. Where does this all come from? For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. Here's what we learn. For unto us a child is born. Number one, is. Why is is important here? For unto us a child is born. It is as good as it's happened already. Isaiah does not waver here. He is completely certain. And so we see from a child, this is someone of human descent. Only children are born. God is not born. This speaks to humanity. Unto us a son is given. A king given. It is a present. It is, it is bestowed. It speaks to the heir of a throne of God. And so this shows us equal emphasis on his humanity and his deity. Let's look at a couple texts in Isaiah that flesh this out. Isaiah 42. So if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 40 kind of begins the, the, the second half. 42 is the first servant song, the chosen servant of the Lord. Now the servant of the Lord has all of the characteristics of humanity, but is spoken of in equality with God himself. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. I could spend all day going through the references in Isaiah, but I do want to look at one more. I want to show you who the servant is. Now, see how the servant is described in Isaiah 43, verse 10. He says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Notice, my servant and, or me and my servant. The servant is spoken of in the same breath with God. And understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed. When there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? This promised servant is in complete equality with God himself. This child who is born, this son who is given to us. Think about this. When we read this, we read this with Isaiah. Isaiah sees this son given to us. If you are in Christ, you have the same savior that Isaiah does. You have the same hope that he does. You have the same gift that he does. He is a gift to the people. And so one more text, Isaiah 49. Notice that this is a gift to Israel and to Judah, but not only to Israel and Judah. Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He said... 
it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribe of Jacob and bring back, it, and bring back preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This promise to Israel and to Judah is fulfilled in the light going to the nations. It is not enough that he should just save the, the, the people of Israel. This salvation is too good to be contained for one people. It must go to the end of the earth, to every tongue, tribe, and nation. For unto us, this is why the Great Commission goes out. A child is born, a son is given, that whosoever may believe shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, now, when we know who he is, let's look at the difference in his kingdom from the kingdom that Israel found themselves in at the time of this writing. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. What does government mean? It means the authority. It means the uh, rule. Remember the last time we saw shoulder in verse 4. What happened to the shoulders of Israel? The staff of their oppressors was beating them on their shoulders. The weight is taken from the shoulders of the people and all of the weight of all rule and all authority as Jesus also told us in the Great Commission is put on him. The weight is taken from the slaves and now put on the king. The weight of the whole government, all authority is on him. And so when you speak of his name, we talk about this often. Hashem, the name in Hebrew it is your reputation. It is your character. It is all that you are. This is a comprehensive person. These are not names to be taken individually, but they're making, made to be taken comprehensively. It's a descriptive character in all these different images. We put all of these ideas together, and it shows you who this child will become, what type of king he is. This is far beyond any mere earthly king. Let's look at each one of these. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Wonderful counselor, first. Wonderful. This is a word for miraculous. It is only ever attributed to God. It is a word for God's supernatural acts. And a counselor. Counselor is one who gives wise judgment. One who is, this, is, this wonderful counsel, counselor is someone who is astounding in wisdom. Let's look just a couple chapters forward in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, remember that from chapter 6, and a branch from its root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek on the earth. And you can go on and on and on. This first characteristic means that his rule is unparalleled. This is unparalleled rule. There is no one as amazing. There is no one as wise. There never will be. There never has been. That's number one. Number two, mighty God. This, the, the, this mightiness is, is not just strength. It is heroism. It is divine power. He is the hero of the story. This is why... This is no ordinary child, and we do not fixate on his birth. He is mighty God. And so he has an unparalleled rule, and here he has authority and ability to rule. His authority, he is God himself, and his 
ability. He is mighty. Number three, everlasting father. Now this kind of trips people up because we're talking about the son here, but this is a quality characteristic. What do we know about fathers? They are to provide. They are to protect. They are to correct. They have headship. And how long does this fatherly relationship with his people last? Everlasting. It never ends. The everlasting father. This is the strength and length of his rule. Let's look at chapter 40 of Isaiah. Everlasting father. It is a strong ministry. It is a kingdom that shall not be shaken and a kingdom that shall not end. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Go up into a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Both hear gospel. In, in Isaiah, same idea. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of, Jehovah, of, of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He's strong, but he's also a caring father. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them into his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. One more, Isaiah 63, verse 16. Both these ideas come together in the quality and length of his ministry. Isaiah 63, 16. For you are our father, Though Abraham does not know us, remember the Jews want to look to Abraham as their father, but they were rightly to look as the Lord as their father. And Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. It has always been so that this one who is co-equal with God would be a mighty God and also everlasting father. So we've got unparalleled rule, we've got authority and ability to rule, we've got strength and length of rule, and then lastly, the prince of peace. Um, this can mean prince, and I think they just, most English translators use this for, for uh, alliteration's sake. But this means chief among the peoples. It doesn't mean prince literally as in the son of a king. It means an administrator, the, a, a leader above leaders. And he is a prince of peace. Shalom in the, in the Hebrew is, doesn't just mean an absence of war. It means wholeness. It means completeness. It means nothing is lacking. This administration, this leader, this chief among chiefs, his kingdom will be marked by not just peace because the enemies have been destroyed, but a people who lack nothing, who fear nothing, who need nothing. He is a prince of peace. This is the quality of his rule. We need all of these to see how great this king is. This is a sermon of superlatives because this is a text of superlatives. If you don't know what a superlative is, it is the most, the greatest, the highest. Anything you can put above all else. We will spend the rest of our lives using superlatives to speak about the person and work of Christ and we will never scratch the surface. He is the most wonderful counselor, the almighty God, the everlasting father. He is the one and only Prince of Peace. That is the king that is promised to his people. And so when we sing, Heart the Herald Angels Sing, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. 
Hail the Son of Righteousness. Don't just gloss over those words that you sing every year and the good ones we should sing all year. When we sing joy to the world, let earth receive her king. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations proof. We're singing the scriptures and praising the King of Kings. I'm still trying to figure out the biblical basis for oh, uh, little drummer boy, but uh, we won't won't go there. (laughs) So we're not going to quote that one. All right, let's talk about the the length and nature of this this kingdom. Verse 7, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. So remember, government is the authority, his, his office, his, his kingdom. You know, Jesus so often talked about his kingdom. The kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like because he came in to usher in a kingdom that is not of this world, yet exists in this world. This is the kingdom that he is speaking of. Remember, when they, they, they met him after the resurrection, they said, are, now are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They missed the point. They're still looking for hope in an earthly king. But their king has an everlasting kingdom. Their king has a spiritual reign. And so let's talk about this for a moment. The increase of his government, there shall be no end. So what was the state of Israel at this point? Ever since Solomon. Solomon was the peak of Israel. They have never been there since. Ever since the reign of Solomon, they have been on the decrease. They have been on the decline. Their nation was split and eroded. Like a sandcastle in the beach, every few years a wave would come and it would be eroded and it would be less and less influence, less and less prosperity, less and less peace. They long for the glory days of Solomon. And throughout the years, they only had little glimmers of hope. But his kingdom, this kingdom, no end, no decrease. Nothing will ever be taken from it. Every time the light shines into the darkness, the kingdom increases. No one will ever be removed from this kingdom. No one will ever be snatched out of his hand. And believe it or not, even when we get into the fullness of his kingdom in the consummation, it still increases. Because when the finite meets the infinite, we will be learning about him and growing in him for the rest of eternity and still not grasp him in his fullness. We can't even imagine that. There will never cease to be an increase of this kingdom. And every time we preach and every time we share the gospel and every time we disciple, we are increasing his kingdom here on earth. As on earth as it is in heaven. So what is this government? What is this, this, this rule? What is he stepping into? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. The Messiah is the rightful heir of the Davidic covenant. God pulls Abraham out of paganism and makes a promise. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. There's an offspring that's going to come from you, a singular offspring. God brings Moses to give laws and structure to this people makes a promise to him. God brings David to, bring, to give a, a king, a leader to this kingdom, but David is not the end-all, be-all, because to David he promised, a son from your own loins, from your offspring, will sit on your throne forever. David couldn't understand it. The people couldn't understand it, but they, 
they sang, the throne of David, that the kingdom of Judah would go on forever and ever, but little did they know it was much more glorious than anything that they would see in their lifetime. This would be a kingdom who is truly loyal to the Lord. And they longed for the establishment of this kingdom. They, they, they longed to have their power and prominence back. But they longed for justice and righteousness because they had Ahaz, who was not a faithful king, and many, many more. Unlike all their previous kings, he would establish it. He would uphold it, never waver, with justice and righteousness. Look briefly at Isaiah 42, 6 through 8. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord, still talking about the servant that we looked at earlier. I have called you into righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other but somehow the servant has the same glory of the Lord. Nor my praise I give the carved idols. This kingdom of justice and righteousness, from, light, or from darkness to light, is given to this servant forevermore. Last one, one more after this. Isaiah 65. Here's the length of this, this kingdom. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever. You know, this, this promise of rejoicing, this promise of joy forever. Rejoice in that which I create, not us, him. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice. The Lord himself is doing this so that he will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound, uh, in it, the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. What does God do all this for his glory, for his zeal, so that he can rejoice in the redemption he's done? This kingdom, justice, righteousness forever. John tells us, John 12, 41, It'll be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory of the Lord and spoke of him. I guess it's not up there. So it's uh, John 12, 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah had an eschatological hope. What does that mean? His hope was not in what would happen tomorrow or next week. There it is. Um, it was in the one who is to come. It was in this, this everlasting kingdom. He saw. Imagine as a prophet, you don't understand who this Jesus is. You don't understand the baby who's going to be born in a manger, but you see, you see his glory and you marvel at it. Our hope is eschatological. We have hope right now. As the prophets, we can speak as if it is already fulfilled. And if you are in Christ, you are citizens of that kingdom now. Today, he is your king. He is your hope. And by faith, we hold on to that kingdom. 
that kingdom that shall have no end, the justice and righteousness that even if we don't see it in this world, even if we don't see it now, we know that in him is justice and righteousness and he will judge all perfectly in the end. And we look forward to the day when we will be with him in the increase of that government forever. And how will all this be done? How will all this be accomplished? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Our king is ascended. Our king is at the right hand of the Father, and it is God's own passionate zeal for his glory and his people that has accomplished this. He is a burning love for his people. He is jealously creating a people for himself, building a kingdom worthy of his son. And he put this entire plan in motion before the foundation of the world. We call this the covenant of redemption between the Father, Son, and Spirit in complete agreement. We will create a people. They will reject us. They will turn from us. Who will go send me? The Son says, I will go. I will go in place of my people. I will walk among them. I will take their stripes on my back. I will take their wounds upon myself. I will become their propitiation. I will become their sacrifice. I will deal with their sin. I will bring them out of slavery. I will crush their enemy death so that I can be their king. This is the covenant of redemption with our God. This is why we have assurance of salvation. Because God's own zeal does it and upholds it. This is why we have security in him. This is why our salvation is secure, because it is not up to you and me to maintain it. Praise God. It is his zeal that does this. It is his zeal that sustains it. And he's so zealous that we're going to look at Isaiah 53 last. The same servant who is full of wisdom, who is a light to the nations, who will bring the oppressor or who bring the oppressed out of slavery, will himself be their sacrifice. This is how zealous the Lord is to accomplish the throne of his son. He would sacrifice his son so that the people would be secured in him. Isaiah 53, I mean, we could read all of this, but we're just going to read the first six verses. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Uh, so much imagery there. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he is born our grief, carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You can't just go straight from the baby to the kingdom 
you must go to the cross first. Because the end of slavery, the end of death, the defeat of the enemies happened when this Savior, when this child who became a king took the place of his people, took their wounds, because they were in an oppression. We were in an oppression of our own making. Our own sin, our own burden placed on our own selves in rejection of the true and living God. And only the true and living God could save us from ourselves. So, in conclusion this morning, Christmas season, do not leave that baby in the manger. That child became a king. That king is wise. That king is powerful. That king is protective. That king is peaceful and passionate. He is our king, our Lord, our Savior, our mediator. This is why reducing the incarnation of the Son of God to a commercial holiday is a travesty. How often do we make everything about us? But if we were to preach Christ like this, to our Christian friends who think it's silly or weird to go to church on a Sunday morning, they don't know this Christ. Because the Christ of the Scriptures... He is the Lord of all, and this becomes a celebratory rejoicing of all of his superlatives. He is the greatest, the highest, the most of everything. And the, and the quality and scope and duration of his kingdom surpasses all others. I hate to break it to some of you, but the United States will fail. Every nation on earth will fail. If your hope is here, you will be disappointed. But his kingdom, no end, no decrease ever. And so, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, this is the end to our slavery. He has broken our bonds. Death has no more sting. We are to be a rejoicing and joyful people because we are free in him. The light has come upon us. And as we go out from here, the harvest is still plentiful. The light shines to all nations. And when we speak to people, we say the same words that Christ did. He began his ministry with repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we have the same call, citizens of the same kingdom, and we get to see in the fullness of what Isaiah only saw in shadow. So when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, as Jonathan said earlier, he is coming again, and he is coming to dwell with us forever. Let's pray and praise him. Heavenly Father, you are our Father. From everlasting to everlasting, you are. There was no time before you. There will be no time after you. There is nothing outside of your control. There is nothing, out, there is nothing that you lack. There is nothing that surprises you. There is nothing we or anyone else can do to thwart you. You are God above all gods. And your Son who is truly God, you sent for us that we might praise your name to the praise of your glorious grace. And you endowed him with your spirit, which you gave to us to seal your people for all time. This is a kingdom without end, a kingdom without, without ceasing, 
without enemy because our enemy has already been defeated at the cross. We praise you for this great salvation that we have. We praise you for our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly man as we were, yet without sin. Perfect in all his ways. Rejected, yet resurrected. Ascended and ruling right now. We praise our King, seated at the right hand of glory where he belongs. And we look forward to the day when all of his enemies will be made his footstool and he will return in glory and bring us home that we may dwell with our God as his people forevermore. In his name we pray. Amen.